We've all heard the saying, learn to love the process. But why learn to love something? Why not create a process that is easy to love? Welcome to Peace with the Process, where I bring you professionals who specialize in the processes we incorporate to sustain consistent, healthy growth. I believe in learning from others' mistakes and successes. So I also bring on entrepreneurs who have been in the trenches and tell us how they got there and how they got out. I hope you find something in today's episode that you can apply to your own life and that you find your peace with the process along the way. Let's get started. All right, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Peace with the Process. Let's just go ahead and talk about this crazy Texas weather today and talk about how I don't think I've ever seen Texas get down to, what was it, five degrees? I think some of you may have even seen it as low as three, zero in the negatives. Uh, That's insane for Texas. We're snowed in today. Um, my wife, obviously, because she's a school teacher, is snowed in and at home today with the schools shut down. And I work remote anyway, but my uh, my office is their servers are down at my usual nine to five as a, as the uh, the supervisor for the sales office there. And so that I'm I'm here working from home on just uh, the podcast stuff, you know, working on other things that are going on there. So yeah, we're snowed in and. But still trucking along. I still got to get these conversations to you guys, and uh, and make sure that you still have the tools you need to continue your growth on a regular basis. So today's uh, guest, Mr. James Rosebush, has an amazing uh, list of experiences that qualify him to talk about our topics today, which is uh, winning your audience. So there's a lot that goes into that. You know, storytelling. He's an amazing storyteller, and that's one of the things that we really get to pinpoint on in our conversation today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the stories, but also have your notes ready to write down some things because we all know public speaking and storytelling, sharing our stories with other people, these are things that don't always come naturally to a lot of people. There's, It's the number one fear is public speaking uh, in the world. So sit back if this is something you've struggled with and take some notes and be prepared to share what you have going on what you've experienced in your life with the world all right i want to thank everybody who has left their ratings and reviews for the podcast it is extremely appreciated Uh, if you have not done so just ask take a moment right now you can pause the episode and do that right now for us it really helps get this podcast out there and available to other people so that they can take advantage of the amazing conversations that we're having today especially with today's guest now one of his experiences is his time he spent under uh, president ronald reagan as his advisor so i just want to kind of drop that in there as a little teaser to some of the things we're going to get to talk about today so if you've ever been sort of interested into you know what some of the things that go on uh, in politics are this is a great kind of you know little brief introduction into what that world looked like at least back during uh you know reagan's presidency and a little bit today's as well um, but there's a lot of good information to be taken from today's episode. So if you get some great information from today's episode, you get some thoughts, some ideas, make sure to go over to Peace with the Process Facebook page, find the teaser video that we uploaded for today's episode, and comment. 
let us know what you thought about today's episode, what your thoughts were, what were your insights, what were just some things you want to get going, some discussions you want to talk about, and put that in the comment section of that Facebook page post. Now, if you're looking for deeper conversations, you're looking for a way to get involved with other like-minded individuals, head over and check out the Peace With The Process Facebook page where you can answer a couple of questions and get into that closed group and become part of the community of Peace With The Process and discuss the different ways that we're learning and growing and becoming better in our day-to-day lives. All right, now, if you want your insider's access, emails delivered straight to your inbox, that's everything about our episodes packaged into one and sent directly to you the moment that our episode airs. If you haven't signed up for it, you're not going to get today's information. But if you sign up for it now, you will get next week's episode information. So what that is, it's going to get emailed to you the moment that the episode airs. You're going to get the links to listen on both Apple and Spotify. And you're also going to get uh, the little teaser image. You're going to get to take a look at all of the different links from our guest for that day. So you can go out and you can check out our guest for the day before you even listen to the episode. Have all of his links available there for you his or her links whoever we have on the show Uh, and then you'll also have all the tools and resources that we talk about on the show as well as any uh, gifts or promos that we talk about on the show or don't talk about on the show sometimes we come up with some things that we want to throw in there for you guys at the very end so i know one of the things that i'm going to drop in there for you is going to be a link to my latest article and you're going to want to check that out i think you're really going to enjoy it Uh, let me know what you think about it and you'll see it in that email uh, section. Now, this will be for those of you who have already signed up. Those of you who haven't, you're missing out. Sign up for next week's email and get those sent to you regularly on a regular basis. But if you don't want to sign up for that, you can always find the post to my articles on our socials. I'll be putting them up there. Or you can always check them out and any of the other ones that I've created in the past on peacewiththeprocess.com. All right, guys, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get you introduced to Mr. James Rosebush. All right, James, I'm glad to have you on today, man. How are you? Hey, Blake, it's just great to be with you. Love your topic. Love your podcast. Sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, just looking into uh, some of your experiences and some of your most recent books. I'm excited to hear the backstory that goes behind all of this. Obviously, you spent a lot of time uh, in the White House during Reagan's presidency, what led you to that point in your life? And tell us about your time there as well. Yeah, thank you for asking. So this is an interesting story. And it's kind of an example of how sometimes growth is promoted uh, accidentally, right? Sometimes it is promoted through pain and suffering, because we have to migrate out of those and to to find our way out of a, a dark place or a pit is something that we work very hard to, to do. Um, in my case, it, it, there are a couple of touch points, I think, that are really interesting. So at age 19 and 20, I started working for the family office and foundation of the founder of General Motors. Actually, at age 19, I had an opportunity to uh, hold a, a senior management position with one of the trusts that was founded by an individual who was also involved in creating General Motors. This is way, way back, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. So uh, these were extraordinary opportunities that were offered to me at a very young age. And uh, the third week that I was uh, working in, in the office, 
we heard automatic machine gun fire through the plate glass door, front door of our office. We were on the fifth floor of an office building that was owned by the Mott family. And we dove under our desks. Uh, we didn't know whether we were gonna be killed or we were gonna be taken out alive or not. The, we were certainly not the high value target. The target was to kidnap the son of the wealth creator and to use him uh, as hostage for financial gain on the part of these ski mask gunmen. And we didn't even know the term terrorist at the time, but it was a terrorizing experience. So, so he was thrown in a room size safe. He was, he was kept out of harm's way. We, we were more or less in harm's way, but as I say, I, I don't think they thought they had anything to gain by, by knocking us off. But anyway, it was sufficiently scary. And uh, after five hours, the SWAT team negotiated with them, got them out of there, and we were led down the fire escape in the back of the building. The outcome of this was that three weeks later, this gentleman approached me and he said, Jim, I'd like you to start uh, a strategic planning process for our trustees our, and our staff to answer one question. Are we having impact by our investing and by our philanthropy? So at that time, we only used the word impact to describe a head-on collision between two vehicles. And today, of course, we look at impact in a, in a whole different context. That is, are we having impact by, by our lives, by our values, by our communication, uh, by our investing? Uh, the in, impact is a, is a much uh, broader term, I think, today that we apply both to our lives and to our businesses, right? So, and, and it's a pretty common thing. So at that time, it was a brand new idea. So I had to unpack it. And I had to do some real thinking in terms of how I might develop algorithms that would show us dollar for dollar where we're putting our money, that is their money, but where we're responsible for managing it, where we're putting that money, what the outcome or what the impact really is gonna be from that. And it was a really, really extraordinary opportunity that I had. And at that age to be speaking in front of, ultimately we had a, we had a planning meeting with uh, the trustees, which were average aged 87. Uh, Mr. Ma, the, the founder of General Motors was still alive at age 97. He was signing my paychecks from his hospital bed. He was very involved in it, but to somehow uh, really buck up and get the courage and conviction to stand in front of these people and say, this is what we should be doing based on the research that I've done and the algorithms I've created was, was, I think, probably to the average person, a pretty scary prospect at that age. Now, there was some, there was an additional thing that happened in the intervening period while I was doing this. I went off to the Soviet Union as a Rotary International Scholar. And it was arranged, all this trip was arranged for me to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with the heads of Politburo agencies for housing, transportation, education, so forth. You would call them all the, if it were in the US, it would be cabinet officials. It would be uh, actually cabinet secretaries. So it'd be like uh, the secretary of, of um, agriculture, secretary of urban, you know, uh, HUD and that sort of thing. So it, it was an, again, an astounding, you know, I said I was meeting with men that were four, four times my girth and uh, five times my age. 
And so again, it was pretty scary. You know, I was there by myself, basically. I was, it had been, a, the trip had been arranged for me. I was followed by intelligence agents. I definitely warranted a, uh, uh, an intelligence dossier. I'm sure they thought that I was there for espionage reasons or some kind of um, surveillance. And uh, I did some pretty uh, crazy things like reading books in English to Russians who would stop me and beg me to teach them English when I was maybe at museums in the evening. Uh, I could have been arrested for that and detained because uh, taking books in English at that time into the Soviet Union was strictly forbidden. But anyway, I got through that. So that, that was like a month, uh, a month and a half, maybe I forget what it was. But at the time, and I'm kind of getting to the punchline of this story, but at the time um, I was, uh, you know, I was in a position because I'd been sent there by Rotary International uh, and I had agreed to speak, make speeches to Rotary clubs about my experience. That was sort of my payback. And so when I got back, uh, to the U.S. and got back into my job with, with uh, working on the impact strategy, I recognized here I had to speak in front of these um, audiences. And whereas my dad, uh, among the three things that he gave me, he was a Dale Carnegie speech uh, coach. So I had learned how to speak growing up, but this was a pretty serious thing for me to do. And I realized the most important thing that has ultimately led to my writing this recent bestseller, Winning Your Audience, and that is storytelling. Anyone who's in an audience wants to hear stories. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit later. But that gave me both the ammunition and the courage and the conviction to go out and speak in front of these Rotary Club audiences uh, with some merit. Because I knew at that point what they wanted to hear. Really? They didn't want to hear about me. They wanted to hear about my stories. They wanted to hear about how I'd been taken for a spy in Russia, that sort of thing. So, and obviously there was drama to that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So here I am back at, in, in standing again in front of, you know, industrialists, people who, you know, started General Motors. They were, you know, and they were ancient, I thought, from my age, telling them or suggesting to them the strategy they needed to adopt. Little did I know that 10 years, exactly 10 years later, I would be in the White House starting the same strategy for President Reagan. So I was responsible for managing, starting and managing the president's program on privatization, whereby we would bring in private sector resources and invest and investors to improve public housing, public transportation, public education, uh, public health. And there's always a fifth one, which I can never remember. So that's kind of, I'm going to stop there because uh, you might have some questions, but that's sort of a framework. You know, I, there were, there were certainly, there were other jobs, other organizations that I, I ran in between my years, uh, my, my early years there uh, with the impact strategy. And then the next assignment in the White House. So uh, there was an interesting framework for professional growth. And also, I, I think as you're growing professionally, you know, you can't, I'm a big, that's why the name of my company is Growth Strategy. I'm passionate about growing. I don't think, I think growing and living are actually, should be considered the same word. As you take every breath. So 
if you recognize from an anatomical sense that your body is repopulating cells, millions of cells every hour of every day. And that just represents your thinking, your mentality, your thought. And so to, to keep a healthy body, for example, is to keep a healthy thought and to keep your thinking always churning, always turning over and always creating new ideas, new horizons, new goals, and new views of life, the world, yourself, and others. Absolutely. That's a, it's, it's a deeper perspective on a term that I use very often, which is if you're not growing, you're dying, plain and simple. Um, I love it. Those are some very interesting stories and uh, a very interesting pathway that you've gone along to get to where you are today. And a lot of it had to do with uh, obviously your confidence levels to go out and do these things, uh, not only just to put yourself into the positions that you were in, but also to uh, to be able to speak to some of these individuals and speak with confidence as well. So, of course, we know just by uh, mention of a, of a few of your uh, attributes as well as your most recent publication that that is going to be one of the big things for us to uh, to spend some time discussing. But I also want to hear a little bit about these strategies uh, that you were uh, implored to uh, to assist in. Could you tell us a little bit more about those and kind of what were some foundations to them that made them so valuable? Uh, okay, are you talking about the first in the first job or in the White House job? Uh, we can try. We can go with both. I'd love to hear both. <laughs> okay, so in the White House, what we tried to do was let let's take public housing as an example. So at that time, public housing was really uh, tall. These tall, huge towers of poverty, as I call them, and they were being torn down at the time because they didn't work. To put all the poor people uh, that were on public assistance in these massive industrial-looking, brutalist-looking buildings, you know, down dark corridors, which public housing authorities managed terribly, horrifically, just like they still do in New York City, where they're rat-infested, there are leaks all the time, furnaces don't work, there's no excuse for it, absolutely zero tolerance that I have in my mind about it. But in any case, we wanted to find out if there wasn't a better kind of housing uh, situation for people who were on public assistance. So what I did is I invited developers that, that were, you know, all different kinds of real estate developers, really, and architects to come to the White House and to, and for me to ask them, what do you think? If we were starting all over again fresh and we recognized that um, people on public assistance, we didn't call it Section 8 at that time, but people on public assistance deserved better. What would you do? And guess what? They came up with better designs, uh, better manufactured housing, uh, housing that would make people feel proud and want to take care of them. Um, it, then this was a throwback in a way to what I was doing uh, with the Mod Family Office and Foundation because we were also supporting public housing at the time. But we found that one of the reasons public housing was always in a state of complete disrepair was that because uh, people are living in it, not to their, not because it was their fault, but they didn't have the education to maintain these houses. They, they didn't understand, they didn't have the training, uh, they didn't have the wherewithal. So you would find uh, public housing would just be constantly deteriorating 
and the condition in which these people had to live was deteriorating as well. So then through our, our discovery, uh, what I did way back in the first job is I took um, 10 or 11 different indicators of basically what you might call public welfare. Now these included high school completion, um, in the percentage of live infant births, uh, deaths. So that would be babies that were born and then died uh, because, because of health conditions or, or sanitary conditions. Um, uh, let's see, SAT scores. Uh, there, were, there were 11, I think 11 different indicators of, that would show where the most desperate areas were that need, geographically that needed support. So then we would go into these areas and pile on, just pile on the resources in terms of money, you know, rebuilding public housing, in, trying to improve public education, all of these things. And really, because, uh, you know, I found that if we were making grants or investments in communities where there were high poverty levels, but you were just addressing one factor, you were going to have all the other factors ultimately beat them down. For example, if you look at the connection between um, high school gradua graduation rates and uh, crime in a community, there's an obvious connection. If kids are not completing high school, they, the very high chance that they're going to be involved in crime. And that's why a lot of these inner cities, and they still haven't fixed this, these inner cities that they, they have very low high school completion rates. Well, hello. I mean, if you don't address that and get, get kids at least finishing high school, you're going to have excessive crime rates, which are just going to continue to degrade and devalue the environment in these communities, which will lead to more crime. So it's just a, it's an evolution that I think has to be addressed in a, a full frontal attack. That's what we tried to do in that early job and in my White House job as well. And it was President Reagan's favorite domestic policy program because he believed that government was not the answer, which I also believe. I believe that it's the private sector. It's the people who are helping each other. You know, they're not today, millions and millions of people are, you know, billions of people around the globe, they're helping their neighbors. They're, they're improving. One of, the, one of the best charitable organizations I know is called Rebuilding Together. And they go out, you know, they get grants and donations. They go out and they uh, go into, let's say, uh, an elderly person's home. So every senior, basically, they don't want to go live in group houses. For, for the most part, they want to remain in place but their houses have deteriorated. So they go in and renovate the houses, make them more, make them more, you know, plumbing accessible, all that kind of stuff. And so seniors can stay in place. Now, what does that do? That it's shown that seniors live longer this way. And it's also reduces the strain on public funding for the elderly. And to me, this is simply the best way to address these social needs. Same, same for homelessness, that sort of thing. But that's what I was focused on in the White House. And then I also became, was asked to become chief of staff to the first lady. So that was another whole assignment that I had in addition to running this other program. Wow. No, I, I love that. And I think it can only get better, not just because, you know, strategies like yours are probably taking place after you've already left and, and people are catching on that that's something that really helps. Uh, but with the advancements of technology, you know, the more 
the more knowledge that is available to those that are in those types of neighborhoods uh, and in those types of situations, you know, it should have a trickle effect uh, to, you know, allow them to educate themselves in so many other areas uh, to assist with some of that. Obviously, there's plenty of other things that go in with it, but I think there is a lot to say for uh, the technology's role uh, in assisting with that. Well, I think you're totally right about technology. <clears throat> I think, unfortunately, these are lessons that have to be won over and over again because there are politics involved. And um, there are people who want the government to control people. I think the less government is, is involved in people's lives, the better, um, <clears throat> as long as they can gain the ac access to things that they genuinely need. But I'm more for solving problems, not uh, which you would say containing problems. I, I want to see the problem, the issue of homelessness, uh, which, I, which I was involved in at a time after that first job I told you about when I, I lived in Massachusetts and the whole beginning of the problem of homelessness, homelessness started there because it was a focus on mainstreaming people who had been in mental health facilities. They wanted to shut them all down and not make these services available to them anymore. And homelessness basically started raging at that time because people were put out of and denied the kind of mental health services that they really need. Wow. But that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but that, <laughs> that's something that I also observed and, and worked in as well. And it made me nothing but, you know, homelessness has been used as a, as a political, uh, you know, hotly contended issue. But the these municipalities in these states refuse to accept the fact that generally the largest number of people who are on the streets need treatment uh yes i mean there there are some very effective programs where they get people cleaned up and in jobs and uh, but they have to have treatment and they're they're not getting it and they, they will resist it. I know that I'm very well aware of it. I'm, I, I've, I've worked in it. And I know if you approach a person on the street and you tell them you're gonna, you've got a training program for them, they'll just you know, absolutely resist that because you know, there are a lot of other factors involved. But anyway, I don't need to take up your time with that. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, a downer anyway. <laughs> It's a little bit, but I will say it. There's a, there's passion that derives from that passion to uh, to continue to seek growth, and I mean that's that's what this uh, this podcast is all about, um, and that's obviously been a big drive in your life to continue to assist um, in the growth in several different areas. Uh, but we can for sure. I definitely want to because we're about at the halfway point of our podcast anyway. So I want to definitely talk about um, a little bit about your first publication, which is uh, True Reagan. You know, what kind of led you to publish that? Uh, what's some content that uh, that people can expect to find in that book? And then we can go on to uh, your newest one. Thank you. Okay, so this is re very related to what we're talking about because Reagan, while he's considered and if you watched any of the, the program last night relating to the inauguration, you saw that there were four presidents were quoted from their inaugural address. And you had Kennedy, Lincoln, FDR, and Reagan. So Reagan stands in the top five uh, in terms of his rating uh, of all US presidents. However, there's massive misunderstanding of who Reagan was. And it makes it easy for people who were 
think they're opposed to Reagan. I don't know how you could be opposed to Ronald Reagan unless you misunderstood or don't make the effort to really understand who Reagan was. Reagan did not make it easy to have himself understood. So Reagan was a child of an alcoholic father. So he had to pick up his father. He was a falling down drunk. Uh, it was uh, a very hard thing for him. And uh, this is generally a problem of uh, offspring of alcoholic parents that they don't trust relationships because, and this is nothing new, there's no discovery that I made, but it's, it is generally known that if you don't have a trusting relationship with at least a parent, or even if there's another kind of familial relationship, then it's hard for you to create trusting relationships with other people. And that is something that Reagan suffered from. Uh, he, he had a very strong mother who was an itinerant minister and she made him read the Bible. Uh, when I say made him, it wasn't as if she, you know, forced him to do it, but I mean, she did. Okay. You're going to, you know, memorize the Bible. You're going to act in plays. Um, she had another book that she gave to him to help him deal with his uh, alcoholic father which was about a young man who also had an alco alcoholic father and ended up going into politics. So he kind of modeled his life after that. I talk about this in the book. So why did I write this book? I had to write it. It was a calling to me because I had written an earlier book, uh, which is really about for first ladies. And that was a result of my being chief of staff to Nancy Reagan, which is a completely different story, but Reagan, for some reason, Reagan, I, since I was working directly for him and I had many opportunities to spend time with him. Uh, for example, one time we received, you know, you get presents, you get thousands and thousands of letters every day. But the correspondence unit would occasionally ask us uh, and the senior staff, you know, how should I answer this letter? And one time a bunch of letters came to me and one of the letters said, uh, does the president have any favorite hymns? as in singing music. And so I, I thought, well, I don't really know. But th now this is how I got to know what was going on inside Reagan, see? A lot of people, because he did not disclose it. He was an egoless person. He was a person like, as I said, I've never met anyone like this in my life, anyone. He had zero ego. So he left, if you can imagine this, he left the White House the same person he went in. He was not interested in power. He was not interested in um, impressing himself or impressing other people. And he didn't care what you thought about him. I mean, how many of us don't care what people think about us? I mean, the average person is on, on a range from, you know, one to 10 is probably at least at a five wanting other people to like, like us, right? He didn't really care at all. And because of that, I learned the link of that capacity to great leadership. Think of this for a minute. So American politics are used to seeking influence and being influenced by lobbyists, donors, uh, public opinion polls, uh, the everyday life of a politician at any level is really, well, I'm gonna get up today and I'm gonna to try to please this constituency or whether you're pro-gun or not gun or you, you know, whatever it is, 
Uh, usually politicians are somewhat sensitive to that because they want to be reelected and they need money to do it, right? Reagan, we, we had pollsters, sure. Interesting, the pollsters, really, their results were more for us on the senior staff. They weren't, they weren't really of interest to, to Reagan because why? He wasn't going to change. He knew exactly what he thought and he had this relationship with God. So let's go back to the day about the hymns at me asking about the hymns. So we're upstairs in the family quarters, right? We're actually standing in this massive <laughs> presidential bedroom, uh, which, which is quite, you know, a, a funny thing he used to say. Uh, they had decorated the, um, it was kind of like an oval room, bedroom uh, where the president and first lady sleep and they had put hand painted birds on the wallpaper. <laughs> And he said, you know, Jim, I, I sit in bed with my slingshot and I try to hit the birds all over. The, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, just hysterical, right? So I said, do you have any favorite hymns? I don't know. How should we answer this letter? Oh, yes. And he started singing his favorite hymns to me. Now, that's a pretty cool thing when you're just along with the president of the United States and he's singing to you. I mean, not he didn't have like a super great voice, but that kind of made it maybe even more poignant. So and I'll tell you what his favorite hymn was in a second. But another time I was up there and he had this Bible, big old Bible next to his bed, right? I mean, it's kind of worn and everything. I said, you ever read that book? I just said, it. oh yeah. He, I, he said, you want to see the, the parts in it that I really read a lot. Yeah. So I had these experiences that, you know, I don't think many other people had them. It wasn't because I was special, but I was curious and I wanted to, I was curious about these things because I wanted to figure out what made him tick. I felt that I couldn't really do a good job working for him unless I understood him. And man, I will tell you, when I came to the White House after he was elected, I had no idea how to figure them out. I was not from California. I was not from the film industry. I, was, I had not worked on the campaign. I had not hung out around them at all. And I, I supported them. I voted for him and everything. And I was incredibly honored to be offered a position working in the White House. I could not figure them out. So I was just like, what makes them tick? Why, what are they, you know, decisions, you know, how, how do they reach it? So I had to kind of figure him out. And so I think that's why, that's really what led me to write this book because I felt that a lot of other people, majority of other people are in the same boat as I am. And I you know, find this all the time because, well, people, there was just a stupid um, show on called the Reagans. You know, people write me, they call me, why, you know, why do they say these ridiculous things about Reagan? I know it's not true. Uh, you know, just blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's because they don't understand him or they have a political purpose in doing, you know, putting him down. But he, again, the reason they, did, they don't understand him is he did not make himself available. You did not understand what was going on inside. He kept everything very close. So did she. She had different reasons for doing that, but you know, she grew up as an orphan, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's another story for another day with you, if you ever invite me back again. But so Reagan, totally egoless person, 
tells me that his favorite hymn, and he sings it to me, is, it's called In the Garden. And it, it goes, and I'll walk with him, and I'll talk with him, and he'll tell me I am his own. Now, that, I raced back to my office, right? And I, I looked up the words for it, and they happened to have been my dad's favorite hymn. And I thought, if any words describe Ronald Reagan, that hymn describes it because he had a walk with God that he never disclosed to anyone, rarely did anyway. He didn't talk about his faith like Jimmy Carter, his predecessor would talk about teaching Sunday school or blah, blah, which is fine, but it didn't really work. And Reagan, he wasn't going to talk about it because it's too expensive to his psyche to reveal himself, you see, because inside he was afraid of really, you know, having, having or trusting, investing in other relationships. So that told me everything. And then, you know, I waited several years and uh, then I thought this is the time because people need to hear what great leadership is made up of and uh, they need to understand Reagan better. So this is not a biography. This is a book for anyone who wants to really figure out who Ronald Reagan was and apply his lessons to their own life. Yeah, I love it. And I love that hymn, actually. I grew up listening to that one as well. Um, so I knew exactly what it was when you gave me the title. Um, and I could hear it. I could hear the tune in my head as well. Um, that's, it's, I don't know, that's beautiful to, to be in the presence of somebody who, as you describe, has, was so withheld to the public um, and then be able to have those intimate moments where uh, he opens up and you're able to see more of uh, the man inside. Uh, I think that just as you said, and you mentioned it a couple of times, you know, it was just by being curious, uh, curiously seeking to know more about him. Uh, and we've had a few guests on the show who have spoken to that exact attribute that somebody can have, you know, by being curious about other people, uh, you learn so many great things about them and learn to appreciate that individual so much more. Um, and I think it's, I think it's an amazing attribute. One that I struggle with personally. No, um, no, you're, not. <laughs> you're a very curious person. Well, I have to be when I'm here on the show, you know, that, that comes naturally, <laughs> that comes naturally, but I don't know. Um, I, I, I would love for it to be more natural um, in the day to day, you know, be curious about the guy who's next to me pumping gas. Uh, maybe that's extreme, but, you know, I think that there's a lot to learn from people, um, especially the people that we least expect. Um, now, granted, you know, your situation was obviously somebody who, uh, who I think a lot of people would have loved to have learned more about who that individual was, um, you know, but that can be applied to so many dis different aspects. Okay, um, so, but look at all the people who also wrote, you know, a few of them wrote books about Reagan. Um, it's interesting. There were people that I worked with in the West Wing of the White House who knew Reagan far better than I did. They, they had worked for him in California. They were friends, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I was a newcomer. So maybe that was why I was more curious, but they didn't, they, they knew Reagan was different, uh, but they didn't really probe. Now, I'm just going to tell you, that I, I'm a coach. Uh, so in addition to growing companies, uh, I, I'm a coach. And 
uh, I'm a speech coach and I'm an executive, so-called executive coach, right? So I coach people, of course, of all ages and levels of experience in their lives. Some, you know, a lot of CEOs, but it doesn't really matter what your career is if you want to have a, if you want to be coached by me. So I, I use this, I'll tell you two things. Generally, in, not to generalize, but to generalize, millennials have an extremely hard time with connecting, connecting with other people. So I get a lot of questions, uh, both from my students and just from general audiences. Um, oh, how can you please tell us how do we make relationships with other people? And I say, okay, it starts with, and I'm going to give you an example, a story in just one second, but how curious to be curious. Well, what does that mean? Okay, I'm going to help you with that. And if you don't feel curious, fake it. Because if you learn just to follow what I tell you to do, you will start having relationships. And by having more relationships, it will help you be more curious. I see many, many people wandering the earth without the relationships that they need. And it's very sad to me. And I, I want to help them all. So this is what you do. You go up to another person. I don't know, you know, wh whether it's random or someone who lives where you do or work in the same company or whatever it is. And you say, where were you born? Oh, where were you born? Um, well, you know, I, I work at General Motors and I'm an engineer. No, 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 no. Just follow, follow this template. No, tell me where you were born. Oh, well, I was born in Dallas, you know, on the east side of Dallas and I blah, 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 blah. And, and then you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. Are you talking about that little town out there by blah, 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 blah. Oh, I, I was actually through there one time. Or I actually had a relative who was born there as well. Do you know that person? So you see where I'm going here? If you actually, if you don't feel curious, fake it. Because mm. your life depends upon it. I'm going to tell you that. We must be developing productive, useful relationships, because both sides have to have it. You need a relationship and the other person needs a relationship. And the best example I can tell you of curiosity was I had a column on Business Insider. Uh, I was on leadership and then I have, now I have a column on Real Leaders Magazine on leadership. And the one, the column that I wrote for Business Insider that got the most number of hits, thousands of hits. Go, you could have blown me over when this happened. All my other stuff, you know, I'm thinking through all these different aspects and giving examples of leadership. It was about Queen Elizabeth. And I talk about my time with the queen. And I talk about, the title I think of the article is The Curiosity of what I saw on my time from with Queen Elizabeth, which I was honored to spend quite a bit of time with. She was the most curious human being I ever met. She's the queen. She doesn't have to be interested in you at all. I mean, you're a gnat compared to, I mean, I'll just speak to myself. <laughs> I was a gnat, you know, compared to all the people that she meets. She meets hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Uh, think of her 65 years on the throne. Anyway, so one night she took a few of us out to dinner in San Francisco. And, um, you know, I had had several times with her before that, 
but she will just come right up to you and say, Jim, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? What's going to happen here? Blah, 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 blah. You know, and it may be that she, you know, this is something that she's decided be, you know, for protocol reasons, she has a whole set of questions, but guess what? It works. You know what happens? It throws the energy to the other person and it makes them feel good. So when you're asked, like you and I had a little conversation before you started taping and I asked you where you were born, where you're from. It makes the other, I didn't do it insincerely, by the way, <laughs> I am a strangely curious person, but um, it makes the other people, person feel good. And that's the beginning of a relationship. Right. Absolutely. No, I, I absolutely agree. And no, it didn't in any way feel disingenuous uh, by any means. Um, and I appreciated it for sure. Uh, so when you started talking about, you know, that being something that that allows people to open up, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, that's that's how I felt as well. And, you know, one of the things that uh, that you that you talk about that, that Queen Elizabeth does where she would come to you and ask, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, what, what are your opinion on this? We've um, we've, we've had other people who, uh, who talk intensely about, uh, the relationships. And one of the, one of the concepts that I've heard come up over and over again, you know, is seek the thoughts and opinions of others. So to hear that, that's something that, that Queen Elizabeth uses as well. Um, it's, it's just reaffirming, you know, some really great, um, concepts so that we can learn to build these relationships. Um, but then, of course, we also have to be uh, confident in, uh, you know, how we speak once we've once we've gotten those relationships as well as uh, initiating those relationships, which I think is a great transition uh, into your most recent book, which is uh, winning your audience. Um, I know that there's a bit in there about what you learned from your time uh, with Reagan, you know, since he's known as the great communicator, as well as uh, some things that you've learned from your father as a, uh, it's a Dale Carnegie what is it is a speech say it again what is he dale carnegie speech coach speech coach okay yeah that's what it was it was simpler than i well, yeah. i was making it out to be uh, uh so tell us a little bit about the the newest book and and what we can expect from that oh thank you well i'm i'm chasing dale carnegie you know dale carnegie had this most i think the book that sold more just like the next book that sold more was like the Bible, right? So Dale Carnegie uh, was, you know, highly successful. And he wrote this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which everyone should read. But I try to write a book that is sort of the modern version of that. Um, I think my next book is going to be actually, this is sort of win your audience. I think I'm next book I'm going to write, actually, you can help me, Blake, is winning, not winning your audience, but winning friends. Mm. And, you know, do you really need friends? And I think this is obviously we, we touched on that a little bit, but okay. So winning your audience is absolutely critical for, you know, whether you're a parent, uh, a school teacher, uh, a dancer, a CEO, wh whatever job you have, if you don't learn and 75% of all people in the world suffer from something called glossophobia, which is actually a, a, an addiction or a, a problem, which is fear of public speaking. So I talk about in the book, I talk about notable people who've overcome the fear of speaking. And I, I give you points, you know, the book is like a handbook. It's full of, you know, you can tear things out. Okay. Here's a list of things I need to do, blah, 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 blah. How do you conquer fear? So fear is the inhibitor of public speaking, but I have to tell you, I am shocked today in this enlightened, uh, educated world, becoming more educated, how, 
poor the level of communication is. Now, I'm not just, I, I shouldn't say just poor, lethal. People are losing their jobs. You know, three out of every, I think it's three out of 10, every new CEOs, according to Harvard Business Review, uh, fail within five years. Uh, there, there are immense failures taking place in politics, in personal relationships, um, uh, parental child relationships, because people do not know how to communicate. And what this book does is it explains uh, two, two of the, I'll just give you two or three of the first part, the rest of it you have to read for yourself, but is how you build a bridge to the other person or build a bridge to your audience, because there's no communication unless you build a bridge. And it in building the bridge, which you can understand pictorially what I'm talking about, the, you have, before you can actually build that bridge and put it in place, you have to tear down the fourth wall. So anyone that you're going to talk to, it could be one-on-one -on -one or it could be one on a thousand or one on 10,000, there's always a wall of resistance. Like, oh, why am I doing this? Why am I here? I got to get on my phone, blah, 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 blah. By the way, just a short thing on the phone thing. I used to be really intimidated in my audiences when I saw people on their phones, right? I'm like, this is so rude. You know, I'm boring. I've got, you know, I feel complex coming on, blah, blah, blah. But then someone told me, Jim, wake up. These people on their phones because they're taking notes on their phone. I mean, <laughs> certainly that's not true. That's what you hope, right? But uh, so it kind of made me pivot away from that fear of seeing people on their phones. But you must tear down the fourth wall of, of uh, partition, which is not the stage right, stage left, or the, the wall behind you, but the wall in front of you. So there's a natural wall of resistance you have to tear down. And Mary Martin, one of the you know hottest of her era, film and stage uh, stars uh, one day in the on the back lawn of the White House, she and I were working on a, a performance project. And I said to her, why are you so well liked? Why are you so successful uh, in the entertainment business? And she threw her arms around me, which is great, right? And she <laughs> said, Jim, first of all, I was born in Texas. And second of all, I was born loving people and they loved me back. Yeah, I, lo I love that the first one is, first of all, I was born in Texas. I know you, I said <laughs> that just because of you, but it is true, it is true. So I think that uh, the more you love your audience that you love being there, that you care about them, they're gonna give it back to you. And remember, 65% of all communication is nonverbal. It is an aura. Remember, communication is consciousness to consciousness. We've all had these experiences. I just had it today. I'm like, someone emailed me asking for a meeting, texted me for a meeting. And I'm like, this is weird. I just like two days ago mentioned this guy. I haven't heard from him in a long time, but I mentioned him in a conversation. It's like, if you notice, if you're on Insta, if you're on Instagram or something, you'll see an ad pop up for something that you never even searched for on social media, but you were thinking about. So there's this natural communication that is not physical. It's in consciousness. And the sooner you recognize that, the better. But that's why so many CEOs are failing. They're losing equity value for their company. They are being kicked out, albeit with golden parachutes, but they're losing their jobs, right? Because why? 
They do not know how to communicate. A lot of it has to that problem we were talking about, lack of curiosity and an inability of a lot of millennials to connect with their teams, their stakeholders, their shareholders, and their employees. Right. So I think, uh, and I think a lot of that stems from the intentionality behind it. You know, uh, like you say, you know, there's, there's obviously, there has to be some level of curiosity that you, you either build or you're semi sort of born with. I'll say that that's an attribute you can definitely, you know, learn from your parents growing up uh, to be that way. But then there also has to be an assertive effort to decide to be that way. Uh, so that when you're in these communications and you're in these situations, that it becomes habitual because I feel like you and I could sit here and discuss all the amazing ways to grow a relationship or to uh, speak powerfully, but it's turning those concepts into habit where we use them when they're needed most, those impromptu situations. What are your thoughts on, on how someone would go about doing that? Well, I think you said it well. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's a real tragic force uh, that is inhibiting a, a lot of people. I call them wanderers that aren't able to, and this goes for CEOs or could go to you know anyone in any walk of life, uh, that they're not able to connect with other human beings. A lot of it is attributed to technology. I'm not sure that it's really all attributed to technology. I mean, you, you have a relationship with your phone, right? <clears throat> but I'm not sure that, you know, plenty of people have relationships with their phone that do have good relationships with human beings. But I don't know what to say except through the way I coach people to alert them to the incredible cost to them, to the world, to their jobs, you know, economic loss and so forth by not being able to relate to other people. But I think that this is um, something that really needs to come out in the open and it really needs to be addressed. And I think that love is the answer as the song goes, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think just like Mary Martin, but then again, how do you love? You know, how do you love? Because love is the only way you find fulfillment. So how do you learn to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, you have to learn to love yourself. <laughs> and from that, I think loving something that's bigger than yourself, let's say loving a cause or loving a pet, or, you know, I think a lot of people who live alone, you know, they realize they need pets to express love and, and pets express a lot of love. Um, so I think, you know, people are smart to do that, but you need to put yourself in situations where number one, I think intellectually, you have to accept the fact that you need other human beings. So you better start, you better darn well start showing other people that you're interested in them. And it isn't that easy. It isn't that easy. People, people find it really difficult, but I think it's because in part, we haven't valued the whole moral precept of love and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. 
it's just simple things like it's it's not religious it it, it i mean it, it can be religious but it's the truth it's the truth that makes you free otherwise you're gonna you're gonna be in bondage who wants to think about themselves all the time oh my gosh yeah you know absolutely <laughs> i think you so, i think you nailed the i think you hit the nail right on the head when you said you know we have to we have to value love well everything that we seek to get better at i believe in order to to bridge that gap between uh between the knowledge itself and the urge to actually start doing it and do it consistently to where it becomes habitual i think it is linking the value back to what it is you're trying to grow in for instance relationships it's 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 as simple as tracing that back to what are you going to be deprived of if you deprive yourself of genuine uh, and good and abundant relationships, but finding that thing, that thing that connects with that one person that, that they just, it, the light bulb clicks and it says, you're absolutely right. If I, if I neglect my relationships, I neglect my, my personal health. You know, there is a way that it can link back to that. Um, you know, there's, I think it's the, it's the linking it back to something that you value so much you couldn't do without that maybe we're not picturing when this drops this deteriorates slowly over time totally it's like you know we started this conversation i think we were on air with it when we talked about um cells uh, multiplying in the body mm -hmm. and growth um spiritual and intellectual growth um turning over and growing in your own thought, right? Through discovery. I think that without love, you're not gonna find love being expressed to you until you express love to others. But it's amazing though, the number of people who don't get that. Mm -hmm. And they'll go through life feeling lonely, like no one likes me, now you don't have any friends, blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, have you been a friend? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, well, that no one needs me. Well, oh yes, they do. Um, just taking the initiative. And I think generally, I think more, more people than not are, you know, all over the world today. You know, when people tell me, oh, the world is in such a bad way. Well, that's a trap. The world is not in a bad way. The world is full of billions of people who care about other people and they're they're cooking meals and bandaging up and, you know, doing things for other people every millisecond of every day. We just think we see, you know, uh, the, just a microcosm of the world is expressed to us through the news. And the news is all about telling you how bad it is. It mm -hmm. isn't that way. That's a trap. And uh, so anyway, I, I think that human relationships are extremely important. And I think that um, the ability to communicate to other people, again, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or one-on-a-million. Um, and you see this, and I talk about this in the book, uh, Pope John Paul II, who I was honored to have been blessed by three times. I was blessed by the Pope, and I'm not even Catholic. Uh, <laughs> but this guy, this, I shouldn't talk that way, but this man, this religious leader, I mean, it is a, it was a profound experience to be blessed by him. And as I say, I'm not, I'm not even Catholic, but he looks at you in the eyes, not with his eyes. He looks at your soul 
and with, with deep penetrating, just like ray is just like radiation is going to you when he looks at you and talk about communication, winning your audience. I will never forget that. I felt that person expressed a, a super a razor-like radiation of love right into me when he took my hand and you know did whatever Catholics do to bless you. But this was uh, this was an extraordinary. Now that that's kind of the pinnacle of communication, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I agree. Um, and you know maybe there will always be not maybe I believe there will always be something that uh, can only be described as uh, as divine you know, divine uh, interference, you know, in some way or another. Uh, but I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today, Jim. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic. I, I, we're getting down to the last minute or two here. Um, and I don't want to uh, deny you the opportunity to share with our listeners wherever they can uh, stay up to date with what it is you have going on. Uh, you talked about looking to publish uh, another book later on down the road. I want them to make sure that uh, they know where to go uh, to find that and also where to find some of your current publications and, and see everything that you have going on today. Well, thank you. So, so don't miss uh, go Amazon or wherever books are sold. Um, you can get uh, true Reagan, what made Ronald Reagan great and why it matters, which is also on audible, which is uh, I'm, I read it. I read the book. So if you want to put up with hearing my voice, so you can either listen to it or, or read it. I would have, that was a number one bestseller. Of uh, this new book, fortunately, it came out the week of basically COVID lockdown started. So I wasn't able to travel, but I ended up doing radio all over the world and podcasts all over the world, which is really great. It's number one in its category as well, winning your audience, speak with the authority of a president. I know that both of these books, one will really enhance your understanding of great leadership and enrich your soul and winning your audience will give you the skills to be able to communicate it. You can uh, reach me about coaching on impactspeakercoach.com, impactspeakercoach.com. And on that site, you'll see what people have to say about their work with me and coaching. And uh, my corporate site as well, which is growth, www.growthstrategy.us, growthstrategy.us. And of course, anything you ever want to, I, I post a couple of times on LinkedIn, so... I'm talking about these things all the time there so we can meet up there but i really appreciate your asking and uh, love to be of help to anyone oh, through my books uh coaching or speaking uh with with anyone because i know there's a world out there that's really looking for uh solutions to whether they're personal or business related or speaking absolutely um and i don't i don't know if i mentioned beforehand that uh, dale carnegie how to win friends and influence people was the first book i ever picked up that set me uh, on a journey to uh, to growing myself um and then i picked up several other versions of his book as well to hear that you know you're you're kind of uh you know uh, in, in a sense chasing after some of the the great nuggets of wisdom that he has done and then doing it in your own way and how that looks today in a modernized version um, I'll definitely be keeping up with everything that you have going on. I look forward uh, to checking out some of your books that you've already got and uh, really looking forward to uh, your new one whenever it, whenever you get to working on it and it comes out as well. Uh, so I'm very excited for that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Love being with you, Blake. 
All right, guys, there you have it, Mr. James Rosebush. Now, how many of you were captivated by some of those stories that he, were t he was telling? You know, even just something that piqued your interest. You know, there's a lot of times where we have conversations with our guests on the show and, you know, the exact tool or the exact insight that we're looking at isn't always explicitly said out loud. I think a lot of times some of the best takeaways from our conversations can be found after you've had a moment to kind of sit back and analyze how that conversation went what were some of the strength points in it you know i think and of course you have different perspectives as well as you know we'll talk about some more some of this more on our uh, our process perspective episode that we have um, but i want to hear what your perspectives were what did you pull out of today's episode that was maybe an underlined meeting, something that wasn't explicitly said. I know for me, it was definitely the storytelling because he, we make mention to it here and there, but his ability to tell stories within the podcast itself uh, was captivating for me as the interviewer, and I hope it was captivating for you as the listeners as well. So take that into consideration. And of course, we touched on curiosity as well, which I've touched on with uh, some of our other guests we've had on the show, Mr. Robin Dreek, who had a lot to say about uh, gaining trust. You know, it's apparent that him being you know, in, as, as part of the uh, part of the FBI, and then we have Mr. Rosebush here, uh, who's spent a lot of time in uh, in the political arena. That this is a, a a technique that is used amongst some uh, some very high power individuals, some people who are cultivating it. Like cultivating relationships is what they do, and what they are required to do by our uh, by our government. You know, so that. I think that has a lot to say about the impact of one sharing stories, like James mentions on our on our episode today, and then uh, two a uh, a concept that two guests so far have agreed on, which is being curious and getting to know other people through that curiosity. So I want to hear what you took from today's episode. Maybe that's not what you took at all. Maybe you had a completely different takeaway. I want to hear about it. Make sure you head over to Peace with the Process facebook page find the teaser video that we posted for today's episode and comment on there what your thoughts were for today's episode <laughs> and if you want deeper uh, conversations you want to be part of a community that is consistently looking at how they grow and what they can do on a daily basis to get better than they were the day before then you need to check out our peace with the process facebook group now on there, you'll have two questions you have to answer before I let you on because it is a closed group and we want to make sure that the people that we let onto that group are going to be involved. They're going to communicate. They're going to uh, be interactive with the other guests on the uh, in the community. So that is two amazing ways that you can get some things stirred up about today's episode and start putting them into some action. And one of the things that I'm asking people to do in the Facebook group is to share a story with us. You know, take this as an opportunity to share a story with the rest of the members of the group because that's one of the best ways to, to connect with the audience. It's one of the best ways to share our experiences and some of our ups and downs and, and learning opportunities for all of us to have. That's why this podcast was created so that we could learn from each other's experiences, uh, ups and downs, the things that went good, the things that went bad. And that can all be done through just like 
Mr. Rosebush talks about on today's episode through amazing storytelling. And of course, curiosity from your side of the point. When someone's telling their story, make sure you're being curious to pull out some things that maybe the storyteller hadn't even thought to go into detail on. So just some really great takeaways here, especially when we're talking about cultivating relationships um, and you know really establishing what our you know what our message is going to be to our audience whoever that is for you because the chances are they connect with you because of who you are all the different experiences in your life that have created you into who you are today that's why people follow what you follow it's not necessarily what you know yeah that's a, a decent chunk of it but the majority of it is because they connect with you as an individual and they want to hear more about you your background, your story, your experiences. That's why they follow you because they want an insight into what goes on in your life and obviously your knowledge and what you have to offer up to the community as a tool or resource for their continued growth, whatever that is that you cover or do, <laughs> if anything at all. Maybe you're just uh, just a um, consumer at this level, but that's perfectly fine. Step out of that consumer stage and get to where you are um, you know, someone who's a contributor. I think that would be an amazing transition to see if any of our listeners are, are just at a consumer status, make that transition into a contributor status. One of the ways you can do that is by joining the Facebook group. Just going to drop that in there for the last time. And if you want access to uh, all the insiders access emails, head over to peacewiththeprocess.com, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and you can sign up to subscribe to those emails where I will give you all of the gifts, promos, tools, and resources from today's episodes emailed directly to you at the second that I air the episode. That's things we talk about on the show and things that we may not mention on the show, things we gather together uh, after, whether that's me and the guest talking or just some things that I've got going on here regularly that I'll pack in there. For instance, uh, my newest article is going to be posted out there today, I believe, and I'm going to put that in the email list. So if you've already signed up for it, you're going to get that sent directly to you. If you haven't signed up for it, you're going to miss out on it, and you'll have to check it out on my socials, or you'll have to check it out on peacewiththeprocess.com, and you can find it there. But go ahead and sign up for those emails so that you can have that sent directly to you the next time one of my articles drops. I'd love to get your feedback on that. Tell me what you think about it. So be sure to comment on that when I post that on our socials uh, and, uh, and all the other places that we have that going on. All right, guys. I am extremely excited to be going another month on Peace with the Process, and I cannot be more grateful to have all of you tagging along with us, uh, contributing along with us, building into this Peace with the Process community and, and what this all means, this continued growth without sacrificing our health, uh, whether that's mental or physical, our relationships, ourselves, or our wealth in the process, we can sustain healthy growth uh, by finding balance in our lives and by doing so uh, from an analytical point. So I'm glad to be on this journey with all of you, and thank you so much for being on this journey with me. I will see you next time on Peace with the Process.